Hello everyone and welcome once again to Motos and Friends, the weekly podcast brought to you by the editors at Ultimate Motorcycling. My name is Arthur Coldwells. Motos and Friends is brought to you by the new Schuberth E2 helmet. The Schuberth E2 is endless adventure. Whether you follow the Mission Foods King of the Baggers Moto America race series, you have to admit that the performance extracted from the Indian and Harley-Davidson heavyweight machines is astounding. Nick DeSena recently had the opportunity to chat with the race team and ride the Indian Challenger, campaigned by Tyler O'Hara and Jeremy McWilliams. This bike is clearly not for the faint of heart. In our second segment, Associate Editor TJ Adams has a fascinating chat with Paul Dorleans, also known as The Vintagent. Started by Paul back in 2006, the website quickly became incredibly popular for those with an interest in older two-wheeled motorcycles. A world-renowned authority on vintage machines, Paul is a judge at many classic events and shows, including the Quail Motorcycle Gathering. So, from all of us here at Motos and Friends, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Schuberth Helmets, head protection technology made in Germany. The new Schuberth E2 launches this month. It's like a C5 with a new peak visor, increased ventilation with a new chin air intake, and a larger rear exhaust spoiler. It's got the same features of the C5, including a revised fit with customizable inner pads for comfort, increased safety with new EPS material and anti-roll-off system, and it's pre-wired for the new SC2 communication system, offering mesh by Senna. It's also got a locking mechanism to hold your chin bar open. Learn more about all the new features at shoeberth.com. The new Shoeberth E2. Endless adventure. We rode the SNS Cycle Indian Challengers um, that are piloted by Tyler O'Hara and Jeremy McWilliams, who you know and I sure. assume appreciate. Very um, much. Yeah, I've ridden with him. Yeah. 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 Um, we'll get into Jeremy's uh, colorful backgrounds in a few minutes here. Uh, that's actually like. <laughs> The bike I rode, um, they had both Tyler's bagger as well as Jeremy's bagger on hand. And just due to the sheer amount of media that were on hand, we sort of split the bikes between the group and went from there. Um, for all intents and purposes, the race baggers between McWilliams' bagger and also Harris' bagger are pretty much identical. There are some tweaks in between to fit each rider because race bikes are obviously personalized. But there's a lot of similarities. And when you're talking about hard parts, they're identical. Uh, so that's where we're at. For my part of it, I rode Jeremy McWilliams's race bagger, and he was able to take uh, victories and podiums and things like that throughout the 2022 season. So the sort of backstory to all of this is Indian Motorcycle invited us out to ride their championship winning and race winning uh, Indian Challenger baggers that participated in the Moto America King of the Baggers racing series. Now, quick backstory on that is the King of the Baggers series started back in 2020 
with a single one-off invitational only event at Laguna Seca. It went off without a hitch, we'll say. Uh, fans absolutely loved it. A lot of people identified with it. And it starts bringing in that V-twin element into the Superbike paddock. And so it's just, it's just drumming up interest from different manufacturers, things like that. But the core of it and, you know, the, the sort of, the, the core interest is that it really pits the classic, um, you know, a V-twin American feud in a, in, in a road racing environment, right? So you have Harley Davidson and Indian Motorcycle going at it once again. Now we know that they've competed since the board track racing days into flat track, things like that. Obviously Indian had a slight five decade or so hiatus, but you get the picture. Sure. And King of the Baggers pretty much launched full send into the, the next season, which was 2021. And they expanded the racing series into a, a three-round event. Then in 2022, it grew even more based on its continued success. And that attracted more manufacturing involvement. The Harley and, and Indian teams started putting more factory efforts behind their respective projects. And things are just growing by leaps and bounds every single year. I mean, the reality is that these baggers that we rode, um, the Indian Challenger, as well as the Harley Davidson uh, Road Glide Special that we rode back in, uh, I think that was the beginning of 2022. Uh, these are full blown superbikes for all intents and purposes. Yeah. Yes, they start out as your typical baggers, low slung touring motorcycles, but by the end of whatever the engineers are doing to these bikes, they're full blown superbikes. Although they're enormously long tall and you know anywhere above 620 pounds uh, that is the hard weight limit uh, for kotb uh, king of the baggers at any rate now that brings us to chuck walla valley raceway out in beautiful desert center california and if you can imagine a place <laughs> that reflects its city name so well it is desert center california absolutely it is at any rate, uh, Chuck Wall is a very, I don't want to say technical racetrack, but it's but it's fairly tight. Um, it, it, I would say it's a cornering, heavy racetrack. You're, you're typically on the edge of the tire. There's not a lot of straightaways, nothing like that. So in a sense, you're thinking, well, this is a big, long, heavy, burly bagger at a corner heavy racetrack. That's not going to work out so great. But it does. You know, these things are full-blown superbikes, as I mentioned, you know, and, and really what it kind of makes me think about is something that you'll be able to comment more on because this was your generation. You think prior to the advent of the fully fared sport bike, as we understand it, and you look at what superbikes were in the 70s into the early 80s you know, taking a conventional motorcycle and transforming it into a superbike. That's kind of the ethos that the baggers are running with, at least in my mind, because they're, they're taking something that was never intended for race use and converting it to race use. Um, so, you know, think like the, absolutely, you know, the, was it, what is it? The water Buffalo, the, the GS uh, 1100, is that it? The uh, one the that down down pipes the the four the four down pipes in the front and 
all that stuff you know what i'm talking about uh you're talking about probably the gs1000s the suzuki gs1000s it's the the blue and white with a little weenie handlebar fairing little bikini fairing on it exactly yes yeah that was uh i think from memory that was 1982 um this was really back in the days when um the japanese were still producing you know big powerful and somewhat heavy motorcycles and they figured that just cranking out more horsepower was was the way to go and uh this was prior to the uh the Jixas being launched in 1985 which really changed the face of everything where um you know for years the Japanese believed that they couldn't sell you know clip-on equipped bikes with these super sport radical riding positions and the Jixas range in in 1985 in England I think in 86 in the U.S. Um, was really what changed all of that but the original superbikes as raced by you know Freddie Spencer in the AMA and you know Wes Cooley and all that kind of generation of guys um, were really from sort of 79 maybe 78 78 79 through uh, you know all the way all the way through the 80s really yeah you know up until the GSXR came out and then at least in my mind, that's when you have the definitive transition to where manufacturers are making fully fared clip-on style sport bikes instead of exactly transforming a, you know, at the time, which would have been, you know, the top tier sport bike, but it still had conventional handlebars. So my thinking, you know, as much criticism as the, the sport bike purists throw at the baggers, it follows that same kind of logic that really goes to the genesis of of sport bikes and how they they made their way to the racetrack. Um, now, the reality is we do need to be honest here. It is a bagger. It is fully designed not to do this. Um, so how do you make a, a 600-something pound motorcycle? And actually, correction there, Indian Challengers, whether you're talking about the, the standard Indian Challenger or the dark horse version, you're looking at a motorcycle that's anywhere from 820 pounds to about 850 pounds, depending. Um, the Harley-Davidson Road Glide Special is up in that 800 to 900 uh, range, uh, if I'm recalling my spec sheets correctly. Either way, these are big, heavy motorcycles. Now, they get dropped all the way down to that hard weight limit of about 620 pounds, through numerous changes. Of course, all of that stuff that makes a touring bike a touring bike is ditched per the Moto America rules. And, and they do have a lot of leeway in certain respects. You know, sure. um, they have to keep, sorry, before I get ahead of myself, you know, in, in terms of the leeway that they have with the Moto America rules, they can change a lot about the motorcycles, chassis, uh, you know, engine stuff. Um, but there are some hard limits. Of course, they can't change the frame. The frame needs to be absolutely bone stock unless there's something on the frame that may cause a, a safety issue. In the case of the Indian, there are some small frame tabs that are allowed to be ground out, and it's really just for ground clearance stuff, uh, things like that. So the core backbone frame of the Indian motorcycle and then the uh, steel tubular frame of the uh, road glide specials or street glides, whatever you see on the racetrack, those need to be bone stock. The OEM fairing design, so the actual shape of the fairing 
still needs to mimic that of the original baggers, whether that's the Harley or the Indian. Um, and then there are some engine rules in place uh, and mostly aimed at the bottom ends. They can do a lot of top ends work to, to change things. And we'll get into that in a moment. The chassis for me, that's kind of a free for all. These, these teams are allowed to do whatever they need to do uh, to get the most out of the bikes. And so I think that's kind of where we'll start with talking about you know, building a bagger. Because again, you're taking something that was never designed to go to a racetrack and making it run pretty hard laps around the racetrack. So sort of the first thing to do is raise it up. You need ground clearance. Ground clearance, absolutely. You know, you don't need just a little bit of ground clearance. You need a ton of it um, <laughs> by comparison to a bagger. Uh, so obviously you're going to start looking at these bikes and you'll see that it essentially has a super bike front end for the Indian challenger and specifically the 2022 bikes that we rode that celebrate the 22 championship that they won. Um, you'll notice that it has a shiny gold Olin's fork on it. And actually that's sourced from a Ducati Multistrada 1260 Pikes Peak because that was one of the few uh, forks that Olin's had, you know, in its collection of, of components that was long enough to deal with the height that the bagger needed. So at the time, uh, they took that fork and then customized it for, for their purposes, right? In the rear, uh, the, the Indian Challenger has a leg up against the bagger, the rest of the baggers on the market, in my opinion, because it uses a mono shock design. And it just uses an off-the-shelf TTX shock. Obviously, things are customized for its length and height and things like that. But that's the main way they're raising up that bagger. And it is significantly taller than your standard bagger. Uh, that said, having ridden Kyle Wyman's Harley-Davidson Road Glide Special back in 20, 2022, the Indian is actually lower. Um, I could barely touch the tips of my, you know, my, my toes to the ground in my boots but uh, it's still a big wide boy they're sitting on. So <laughs> these things are tall, 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 tall. So the Indian is lower than the Harley Davidson. It is. It is. It's still tall. Interesting. Still tall, but okay. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, it is. It is lower. Um, it makes it feel a little bit more manageable. You know, it's kind of insane to say that. Um, what's interesting is you look at the the heights of the riders that are actually winning races and piloting these things. And you have guys like, uh, you know, Tyler O'Hare is about my height, so 5'10". Um, and, you know, Jeremy McWilliams is a bit shorter than me. Um, Kyle Wyman is probably in Jeremy McWilliams' height, so he's probably 5'8"-ish uh, around, around there. And you have some, some shorter guys up there. You have uh, Bobby Fong, who rides for the Roland Sands design team, so RSD. Uh, and they use Indian Challengers, derived from the factory motorcycles. And, you know, he's, he's a shorter individual. Um, so you got some little guys riding some enormous motorcycles. And when you see them side saddling, like they're riding a huge adventure bike or a dual sport bike off-road, it's, it's pretty funny, you know, to see that on the, the starting grid. But the reality is even a guy of my size, I pretty much have to do the same thing. Um, so at any rate, back to the chassis, focusing on that, you got to raise the thing up. You need ground clearance. You need ground clearance so you can actually corner and lean and and you know go around a racetrack quick um to give context for this because you know hard numbers are really difficult to tease out of race teams they don't really want to share anything because they're afraid that 
you know, other teams can read the information and glean stuff. And, uh, you know, there's, there's definitely some truth to that. On the other hand, not sure how many crew chiefs will actually read a story from one of us just wobbling around and care what we have to say, but Hey, whatever. Um, you know, the, the swing arm angle, for example, <clears throat> that at a, on a bone stock Indian challenger that sits at around 7.5 degrees. When it, we're talking about one of the King of the Baggers Indian challengers that goes anywhere from 12 to 14 degrees. So pretty significant change. I mean, you're, you're almost doubling it depending on the racetrack, because again, race bikes have race bikes have variable geometries. Okay. Now that kind of covers the chassis. So we have Olin's forks, uh, Olin shock, you know, this customized swing arm. It's super beefy. If you actually look at the photos of it, it's actually the quote unquote stock swing arm, but it's beefed up with massive amounts of bracing to just deal with the lateral stress and just general stress of pushing around a bike at high speeds. That's of this weight. So uh, Harley Davidson, for example, just machined a, a whole new swing arm out of a single block of aluminum in probably the most inefficient way <laughs> you could ever machine something, just a single massive block. <laughs> um, super cool. But, you know, I'm thinking that we have welding and <laughs> other technologies. You can just not do that. <laughs> it's also right. really expensive. Okay. But the swing arm itself, um, you know, they, they re-slotted the axle slots uh, to shorten the wheelbase of, of the, the Indian Challenger about an inch, right? Okay, so kind of talking about the chassis there, you know, the brakes, you look at that, you see, you know, Alpha Racing Rotors, Brembo, Brembo Calipers, which if I'm not mistaken, they actually are uh, Stylema Calipers. So stuff that you'd find on your average superbike. Um, in the rear, you have a single four-piston that is a four-piston caliper, a haze four-piston caliper on the rear with a big old honking uh, dinner plate-sized disc in the rear because these things, because of their length, you can put a massive rear brake on them and it actually works. Uh, in my case, I didn't get to mess around with the, the rear brake too much. Jeremy doesn't run a thumb brake and because he's a little bit shorter than me, the foot controls aren't exactly set up for me. and. Uh, you know, I just wanted to bring this home, this bike home safe. So that's where we're at. Of course. Um, you know, and so we kind of touched on the suspension. You get, you guys get the idea that this thing is fully customized to the hilt. It's raised up much taller. You know, the geometry is variable. It has these massive uh, aluminum triple trees on it with, you know, different offs offset and they can change all of that on the fly. So they can adjust to trail and rake numbers when they need to, depending on the racetrack. And these things are massive, massive uh, triple trees. And really it's to help dealing with the, the forces and reduce flex in the front end. Um, and when you look at them, they're about where they actually mount onto the fork. Those, you know, those mounting points are probably double the, the width of a, of a normal triple tree that would be on a super bike. I mean, they're huge and they look awesome. So that that's, that's pretty cool. Um, <clears throat> you know, kind of the, the next thing to talk about would be the riding position. Saddleman made these really cool custom sort of seat pans. And then they have this uh, seat or fuel tank pummel that you can grip onto, you know, it's sort of a, 
you'll see that on super bikes a lot of the time where there's a, a fuel tank extension for the riders to grip their knees onto during braking phases or in hanging off the motorcycle. Uh, the handlebars oh. come up. So there is a handlebar, technically. It, it's more of a riser, we'll say, that comes up off the, the triple clamp. And then actual clip-on style handlebars. So it does have clip-ons like a superbike, but you know, you got to be a little imaginative with that, that description. And the riding position itself is quite sporty. You know, it's not as aggressive as a through and through superbike, but <clears throat> look at the photos of Tyler and, and Jeremy McWilliams going through cornering or going through corners. They obviously can get in an aggressive position. Um, you know, that said, there are some really interesting things that happen with the riding position uh, in comparison to the Harley Davidson we wrote a long time ago. Um, the rear sets, because they use typical sporty re rear sets, they actually affix to these, to the, the stock passenger foot peg position. So they bolt onto the frame, which has a big benefit in the sense that the foot pegs are not mounted to the engine cases like they are on all of the Harley Davidson races. Yeah. yeah, I remember so that's, that. That's a really crucial point because it hides a lot of the engine vibration. Sure. It's the first, the first sensation that I experienced when riding Kyle's bike back in 2022 was, dear Lord, someone has put an impact gun to the bottom of my boot as I ride down. <laughs> I mean, it's so so violent and vibratory and because the foot pegs are now affixed to the actual engine you're not getting any damping qualities through you know having rear sets that are mounted to the frame and there's nothing to hide any of that sensation right so the indian just by and far feels like a smart smart a far smoother motorcycle from the onset which is a uh, Sure, really nice quality to have in something this big and kind of intimidating. Not, I'm not even say kind of intimidating. It is intimidating. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, kind of let's go into some of the other technical bits for the, you know, the sake of posterity here. Um, you okay. know, the engine, of course, starts out as a power plus engine that we know and love from the Indian Challenger. That's the liquid cool 60 degree power plus engine. V twin, as you you all know, and it's bumped up two millimeter in bore size. That brings it up to 112 cubic inches. That is 1,835 cc's in grand total. So you can fit um, about you know a little more than one and three quarters of every thousand cc inline four cylinder um, engine inside one of these V twins in terms of just displacement um i mean 18 1835 cc's is enormous the pistons are just yeah. wow huge and there's a lot of work that goes into the top ends uh you know according to jeff bailey that's the sns cycle chief engineer uh, and sns cycle is the technical partner for this entire project with indian motorcycles so they've paired up with sns and have really been able to share and enjoy in the engineering partnership between the two. Um, so, you know, SNS's race department is able to pair us with Indians race department and they make a lot of cool things happen. Now, Jeff walked us through the engine. Of course, 
there's a handful of changes, but sort of the highlights go like this. Um, a lighter machined crank is on the 2022 bike. Per Moto America rules, the crank actually has to be within something like 10% of the stock crank for the 2023 season that has already kicked off. Um, it also has CNC ported heads, uh, billet aluminum manual lash adjuster rocker arms. Um, and that's really because the, the standard rocker arms that come in the Power Plus engine just aren't up to the task of holding it near red line for long periods of time. And fair play, they aren't supposed to do that. It, again, it's a bagger. And then for pure reliability's sake, the main bearings are actually welded and placed with a, uh, a, a small little bracket to just lock them in place. Because uh, as you start pushing engines to their absolute limit, sometimes bearings can just go on a little walkabout, we'll say. And uh, yeah, it, uh, it's not the best thing in the world. Um, so there's that. And if you guys were to look at the photos on the right-hand side of the bike, you'll see this honking oval air cleaner that's peeking out from underneath the modified fuel tank. It's really modified just to accept, you know, some space for the air cleaner. And that is a departure from the stock motorcycle. If you look at an Indian Challenger, you'll notice one of the main things about it that separates it from a lot of the Harleys in the world or other V-twin, uh, American V-twin motorcycles on the market. Uh, it does not have a side-mounted intake. It actually uses the backbone design of the frame as part of its intake, kind of the way that a conventional sport bike would use its intake um, or would route the intake, we'll say. Uh, so that, that internal downdraft intake system is actually ditched because the race team discovered that it was heavily restricting the performance of the Power Plus engine. So... They got rid of the 58 millimeter stock throttle bodies and went with a traditional V-twin side, side mounted intake and bumped up the throttle body size to 78 millimeter. Now, oddly enough, they actually got the, the single, uh, single barrel throttle body from a performance application that's designed for a 3.6 liter V6 powered um, Dodge Charger. So it's actually wow. from a car. Wow. Um, Holy moly. Yeah, yeah that's, so, quite a jump. that's quite a jump. Yeah, seven, 58 mil to 78 mil. Um, wow. And, you know, in the car world, this, this particular throttle body can fit, you know, all of the, uh, you know, that's under the Chrysler umbrella. So all of the 3.6 liter V6, uh, you know, engines. So that powers the Dodge Charger the Dodge Challenger, uh, also a minivan, which I should have cited in the story because everyone would have liked that most. Um, <laughs> Hell of a minivan. <laughs> yeah, and uh, one of the Jeeps also uses that same 3.6 uh, liter engine. At any rate, obviously that that's a huge jump up and they're able to get a lot more air intake. And according to Tyler, that just woke up the engine. Okay, so when you're talking hard performance numbers, again, race teams always play it close to the vest. They don't want to share too much information. So the best we could get on the record from any of the, the Indian staff was about 150 horsepower and 150 foot-pounds of torque. Uh, and they their exact quote is making more than 150 horsepower and 150 foot-pounds of torque. So 
don't entirely know what it makes, but those numbers alone, you know, 150 horsepower, you're like, okay, 150 horsepower, 620 something pound motorcycle, uh, and then 150 foot pounds of torque. That's a number that makes me a bit apprehensive, especially when I think about the fact <laughs> that there's no traction control. Wow. And all that power goes through a chain final drive instead of a belt, which is per the usual uh, for, for most American V-twins. And really that's sort of the, the engine build in a nutshell. Okay. Um, you know, of course, I'm sure there's going to be questions about durability. And, you know, according to Jeff Bailey, you know, he said part of what won us the 2022 championship was their reliability. Because if you guys have been following the King and the Bagger series, you'll notice that, you know, these are prototype race bikes. Mishaps happen. Every team deals with them from the factory down to the privateer. You know, stuff happens. That's racing. For sure. But they really wanted to make sure that these bikes were, um, were, were durable and their competitor competitors, you know, sometimes had some mishaps and that, you know, invariably led to Indian taking the championship because they were, they were able to finish most of the races. Um, at any rate, they, they use two engines per weekend. And after the, the event, the engines are broken down inspected and typically according to jeff they just receive piston rings and are put back in play so they're not grenading wow. these engines after every every event if you look at old school world superbike you know back in the 90s um race teams you know had a lot of money to play with and they were a lot more frivolous with their engines and what they would do with them sure um at any rate you know they that's they impressive run, that's impressive that you can get such big horsepower and torque numbers out of what is, you know, sort of standard, standard sort of engine components. I mean, not quite, you know, with various, you know, welded up crank and so on, but that's still very impressive. Yeah. Purely, from, purely from a metal point of view, really, that the metal is that durable. Yeah, for sure. I mean, <clears throat> a lot of the work, like I mentioned before, it has, you know, a big bore kit on it, you know, pistons, CNC ported heads, et cetera, et cetera. That's that's some pretty heavy duty top end work, but in the American V twin world, you know that's kind of what a lot of these guys do anyway. So um, the the bottom ends more or less are stock. It has a prototype slipper clutch for 2022, but that's what they ran in 2022 and 23. Um, that's actually going into production, so it's kind of a give and take, um, you know, from the the race team to the actual production side for Indian motorcycle. Um, and that's that's the engine in a nutshell. So let's actually get into writing about it because we've been whinging about the whole thing, <laughs> yada, 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 but there sure. needs to be some basis, right? Yeah. So there I am, Chuck Walla Valley Raceway. Um, it's actually a really fun racetrack. Uh, sure. you know, like I said, it's a, a corner heavy racetrack. It's very, very flowy. It's not your typical stop and go, you know, F1 style racetrack. Um, at any rate, you know, I have a, an SNS cycle Indian motorcycle crew member grabbing the ferry, fairing. I then have to jump on the motorcycle. I mean that in a literal sense because it is so tall. Right. And, uh, you know, just kind of feel it out. Okay. You know, the clip ons are in the right place. It has brake levers and a clutch lever, foot pegs. Okay. Now we're off. 
Now, one of the main things that Jeremy McWilliams talked to me about since I'd be riding his bike and I really picked his brain is, you know, Jeremy is a guy that has a pretty illustrious racing career. He has a rap sheet in the racing world that's long, we'll say. I mean, his his racing goes back to the two and four stroke eras of MotoGP. He's done some time in BSB. He's done some road racing, uh, you know, things like the, the Northwest 200. Yep. Um, so the Northern Irishman has gotten around. And then later in his career, he became a development writer for different manufacturers. He works with one manufacturer that really loves the color of orange. Yeah. And it's not Harley Davidson. Yeah. Uh, to be clear. And then he also was brought in with Indian Motorcycle specifically for the King of the Baggers project in the beginning of 2022. Originally, he was just there to help with development. He was not supposed to race, but Tyler and Jeremy got along so well, which makes sense because Jeremy McWilliams is a very affable dude, extremely yeah. knowledgeable, super cool, and has stories that will just kind of keep you occupied around the campfire all night. Um, and then they were like, you know what? We want you to stick around, run the second bike the whole racing season. Let's go. Um, so that's that in a nutshell. But one of the main things that McWilliams was really proud of with the 2022 race bike is instituting ride-by-wire throttle, which they hadn't done during the 2021 racing season. So they really had nothing to go on. And as you know, you know, think back to the mid 2000s, early 2000s, when ride-by-wire throttle was coming into ubiquity and the struggles that manufacturers had with that. So, you know, think back, even back to the, the first, the 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 20, 2015 Yamaha YZF R1. I mean the the A mode in that thing was ugh <laughs> by today's standards. Yeah. Um and bikes still struggle with it. So you know the the crowning achievement we'll say for riding this bike and what helped me immediately is just the throttle connection and the absolute perfection that the team has dialed in the power because if you have 150 foot pounds of torque, you need to be able to put that to the ground in a tractable and usable manner. You could make the throttle a one-to-one ratio. So you whack the thing open, you're getting a stupid amount of torque. It's going to initiate wheel spin and off to the moon you go. (laughs) McWilliams and the crew and the calibration guys and McWilliams really makes it clear that, you know, his input along with the the calibration guys and he puts a huge emphasis on the race team really getting that right and developing that system with the, the input from mcwilliams and and, and uh, tyler o'hara sure you know being able to open the throttle and understand that the thing isn't just going to spin up and and kick you off that's an enormous confidence boost on something that is like i said it's intimidating so the smooth power delivery, smooth, respectively, because it's still pretty violent. And the thing just goes. I mean, the torque is enormous. I'm not going to tell you that it's in the league of a modern sport bike, because, again, the or the acceleration is in the league of a modern sport bike. But making a motorcycle of this size accelerate with the urgency and and just the sheer force that it can is not only shocking, but it's alarming. I mean, <laughs> it just blasts in, you know, off 
not necessarily off the apex because there's more considerations we'll get into but it goes incredibly hard <laughs> down this the short straightaways and the transmission is quite good which is a reflection of the stock indian challenger which is significantly better than the harley davidson in every capacity um i have no qualms about saying that i mean it is so much better when it comes to shifting it's just shocking shocking really? okay um it also has an uh, a up down quick shifter the up function so grabbing up a gear that works really well your conventional quick shifter boom there you go the auto blip feature i think needs some bugs worked out a little bit and then with all that massive massive engine braking that you deal with if you're kind of under revving the bike, you know, you're not really revving it where Jeremy and Tyler would be normally. Uh, when you're coming into a corner for the first time and you start banging on the, the auto blipper and maybe go down a gear too much um, or a gear too far, we'll say, you can initiate some tail wagging. And uh, I don't know if okay. you guys have ever made a, a 600 40 pound we'll say when it's actually filled with fuel uh, motorcycle wag around willy-nilly um it, it's pretty scary just to put a pin in it and not just scary but i actually yelled in my head um and one of my my colleagues was riding near me at the time and i, I always wanted to ask him if he actually heard me yelp but i i did at any rate um, so I just went to the old school way of shifting, you know, the old blip the blip to throttle style, much better in my opinion, because I could actually slip the clutch and do things. Um, right. Now, you know, back to the engine, it is shockingly quick in, in terms of its personality, the lightened crank that we mentioned before, that allows it to spin up with much more energy than your typical American V-twin. If you had told me that this V-twin engine came from, say, a brand like KTM or Ducati. I would not exactly be shocked. I would say, yeah, that kind of makes sense. It's still a, you know, a respectively lower revving motorcycle overall. The red lines for our bikes were set at uh, 7,700 RPM, which actually conforms to the 2023 Moto America King of the Baggers rules. Uh, but the torque comes on you know, not exactly far after you're, you're going. So the idle is set a bit higher, naturally, uh, race bikes typically do that. And, you know, so about 20, 2800 RPM, you have torque that just pulls, 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 pulls. And it is a stupid amount of torque. The thing just, as I mentioned before, it just lights off, but it's usable. And that's the shocking thing. I mean, when I rode Kyle's bike in 22, I was genuinely scared nervous terrified any attitude <laughs> to describe right what they're telling us and the feeling on that bike is incredible the feeling on this bike is equally incredible if not more so because the engine is just genuinely smoother it shifts better the and the power delivery is is just as usable and that's the key to making these bikes work because if the power was coming on and you were getting 150 foot pounds of torque at you know 30 percent throttle opening you'd be screwed so that's just kind of being blunt about it um you know and then the handling too that is a shocking just a shocking aspect of this motorcycle 
Um, you know, you know Truck Walla very well. We're running in the yeah the clockwise direction. So you exit pit lane, sure, okay, and then you go up to what's known as crash corner. So that's the the negative camber corner at the so you'd enter it on the right, negative camber corner on the left, and then you have that flick right that goes onto the the back straightaway. You know, that transition from the left to the right. Um. This that's the first time that I really got to taste how agile this motorcycle is. And in truth, nothing this big, this tall, this long, this heavy should be able to move the way it does. And it just absolutely flips through corners and initiates that turn with shocking amounts of, of speed. And the first time I actually did it, I came around that corner. I saw the photographer and he was sitting towards where I needed to go, kind of towards the apex. So I kind of sat up, moved to the other side of the bike and just snapped the bike over. And I was like, oh God. <laughs> and I actually remember the photographer like kind of huh. picking up for a second because it looked like I was staring at him. Correct. <laughs> I was like, I did not expect it to steer that quickly. So there's definitely some recalibration that the rider needs to do. Um, you're sort of climbing around this thing like it's a, you know, a, a jungle gym. Um, and really, you do feel like a, a child when riding these bikes. It feels like you're a kid again, sitting in a high chair, just dangling your legs around. Um, so, you know, the the initial stages of the corner, uh, you know, initial tipping is just shockingly quick. It's, it's amazing what Indian has done. And that's a huge advantage they have over the Harley Davidson's. Now, sort of the flip side of that, and this goes to the rules of King of the Baggers, is that they're not able to update the frame in any way. So they can't add bracing. They can't weld anything. They need to leave the frame as is. Now, that that backbone design of the frame on the Indian Challenger allows a monoshock design for the, the Indian Challenger's chassis. When you compare a stock Indian Challenger to a stock Harley-Davidson Road Glide or Street Glide, I would say that the Indian Challenger chassis is significantly better than Harley Davidson or its competitors. I think that the chassis is much stiffer. I think it's okay. uh, much more agile. And I think it's an overall better chassis, and especially with a monoshock design. It's lighter and the suspension tends to be better. Um, in race trim, that, that chassis, because it's a bolted together chassis, so now you have the backbone, the upper portion that goes across and above the engine, then right. it bolts to the subframe, and then the twin spars that go down to the to the swing arm, and then bolts up to that. All of that is bolted together. Now bolted hmm. frames have an inherent weakness. They're bolted instead of welted, welded. So the frame right. is rigid. The Harley's frame is actually welded. Now, when you get the thing on the edge of the tire. So you've initiated turn, you're starting to add more lean, okay? And even me just wobbling around, like doing like 30 degrees of lean, <laughs> um, you can feel that there's frame flex. You can feel the thing wriggling and writhing underneath you. So it's a combination of frame flex. I would say the tires, because we were running Dunlop Q4s, it was really chilly when we did this test. It was chilly, windy. We had crazy, crazy gusting winds the night before with a little rain. Okay. Slicks were just not in the cards, to be honest. So going with a sporty tire 
is probably the better idea. Um, we still use tire armors and all that good stuff, whatever. So you can feel the thing just wriggling and writhing underneath you. And then you got the power. So you start picking up the throttle. And that's when it kind of really, you know, does a little bit more movement. And then as you start picking the bike more upright, that's when it begins to feel a little bit more normal. Um, okay. So it, it, the chassis overall just has more movement than the, the Harley Davidson. The thing is, it's length. It's so long that it just never gets out of shape. But the first time you feel it, you go, oh, my God, what is happening? And <laughs> it really is shocking to think about how fast, you know, Tyler O'Hara, Jeremy McWilliams, Bobby Fong, you know, all the guys that are at the front of the pack on these things, what they're doing and what they're feeling. And you watch the broadcast from the 2022 season. And it's evident that the Indian moves around a little bit more. It's also evident that it steers in a lot faster and they can throw that bike around, you know, with, with some gusto, we'll say. For sure. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's interesting because the, the Harley Davidson bagger and the Indian race bagger, they're, they're almost diametrically opposite in their strengths, you know, uh, you know, in terms of handling, one is much faster steering, less stability. The other one is far more stable. It's just not as agile. Uh, one is taller. One's a little bit shorter. You know, one brand kind of really pumps the, the absolute most out of their engines. And uh, as we saw in the opening round of the 2023 um, King of the Bagger series, which was at Daytona, that strategy did not work for Harley Davidson. They had some, some mechanical DNFs. Uh, now they corrected it this past right. weekend in Atlanta, where Kyle Wyman got the the double the double victory there. So they had some things to work out. But like I mentioned earlier in the podcast, you uh, in racing there are risks to blow things up, and every team discovers these these ways, and they 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 find new and exciting ways to destroy everything. It's it's actually very cool. <laughs> um, so. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, one of the really interesting bits about the bikes is the actual bags themselves. It's funny watching King of the Baggers because the carbon fiber bags, uh, you know, they, they're always moving around, whether you're talking about the, the Road Glide or the, the Challenger. And uh, in the case of the, the Indian Challengers, I was told that the bags are affixed essentially to, to rails that slide all the way through the chassis to the other side of the bag. What that does is it allows the bag, instead of being bolted to the chassis, so when a motorcycle is going through a corner and it's dealing with lateral movements, up and down movements, in this case, when it's on the edge of the tire, those bags moving can put even more feedback into the chassis. McWilliams, you know, per his uh, development, development experience, noted that, hey, if we were able to isolate the bag somehow, we could reduce some of that energy. So the bags are actually fixed to two two rods we'll say that go through the subframe and then they affix to each other but they can move around a little bit kind of side to side and it it almost acts as like a, a quasi damper if that makes sense so it's a really interesting little thing how much effect it truly has at the absolute limit i will never know but they say it works so i'll take the word for it um, and then, of course, you have the suspension. 
you know, at my wobbly pace on this thing, uh, it, the suspension felt amazing. I mean, they've damped it really well. It's supportive under braking and the brakes are just, again, because of the bike's wheelbase and its length, you can just hammer on the brakes and pretty much nothing is going to happen. You're, you're, you're going to lock the front before, well, you can't lift the rear in my opinion, but whatever. Um, you're just going to lock the front and tuck and crash, but the braking forces are amazing. And, you know, Tyler was talking to us about how they have to ride them at pace and the rear brake really comes into play because the, the motorcycle just, in my experience, you know, you're trailing into a corner. It didn't truly like being trailed in on the front. And what Tyler was telling us is that you kind of have to drag the rear brake a little bit more and and that's something that that he really likes on his bike because he has a thumb brake. McWilliams doesn't use a thumb brake. He just kind of figures it out because, you know, he's he's been doing it long enough, I guess. So whatever. Um, but yeah, this, the suspension is is very supportive without going too stiff. And you'd think bikes of this size and weight and the amount of and the amount of uh, energy and force that they got to carry, they would be this these these super stiff, unforgiving motorcycles. And they're not. And that's kind of the key between like, if you've ever ridden a properly set up race bike versus someone at a track day that just sort of turns everything to the right, you need plushness in suspension. You need plushness in the chassis because it absorbs stuff, not just ricochets off of it. Sure, and, sure, absolutely. And that's how these bikes feel. Um, you know, obviously you get on the brakes and, and things move forward. There is a lot of force behind it, but it can stand up to that. And, you know, it's it's incredible what they've done. So, you know, overall, it, it was an absolutely exciting experience to, to ride the 2022 uh, race winning, in my case, because I did not get to ride Teller Harris championship winning bike, but they're about 98% the same. Um, and, uh, you know, it's an incredible experience to ride these motorcycles and it just gives absolute context to what these guys are doing in, in the King of the Baggers racing series. You look at the, you know, all the way down the pack, you know, to, to some of the other bikes and, you know, everyone is just trying their heart out to, to get the bikes on the podium, you know, wherever they are, whether they're, you know, a factory guy or, or uh, I should also say gal because Patricia Fernandez is, is in there. Um, you know, they're, they're just riding as hard as they can to, to get these bikes in good positions. And, you know, McWilliams and, and O'Hara are carrying consistently nearly 60 degrees of lean. And I believe they actually do hit 60 degrees of lean on a bike wow. like this. Holy moly. So they're definitely the men for the job. Uh, however, I'm waiting for my call from Indian. Uh, the <laughs> uh, happy to ride the bike around um i'd be great for parade laps you know they say that racing improves the breed can you see that any of this stuff you know or experience learnt on the racetrack is going to help um help any of the the street bikes in any kind of way yeah and i actually think we're, we're already seeing that uh, in the case of indian you know I'm not sure if Harley Davidson is is doing the same thing, but I'll sensibly I bet something that they've learned from the the Harley Davidson race bagger is going to be transferred over to the 
the production product at, at a certain point. The one specific case that I can give for the, the Indian Challenger is the clutch that I mentioned earlier. The 2022 race bikes that I, uh, that I rode used a prototype slipper clutch. Now, because of the engine braking and, you know, just stupid amounts of engine braking, uh, you know, they, they did what they could, but I still got some pretty, pretty heavy duty tail wagging out of that rear end. So rev matching is a, a yeah, you, you need to do that. At any rate, um, according to the engineers, that's actually being transferred into the, the production bikes. Um, if I understood that, that observation correctly. Um, and whether that, that comes in, you know, sooner or later, I don't know, but, you know, understanding suspension and chassis, uh, geometry much better and how that's going to be applied. Um, we'll see. And, you know, one of the things that, that I, I really do think will happen at a certain point with the Indian challenger is I bet they're going to change the design of the frame, not necessarily the, the shape and function of it. But I would not be shocked within a year or two with the growth of King of the Baggers if we start seeing that backbone design frame receive some welds and things like that. Because then, per the rules, they would they would have more chassis stiffness and they wouldn't have to be dealing with a frame that's bolted together. Um, right. So yeah, I, I mean, there's one example there, but uh, time will tell. I, I would say logically, yes. And I can give one tiny example of where that's going to happen but i i do think that that racing these things is going to improve baggers overall you know as it stands you've ridden a lot of harley davidson baggers over the years and indian challenger baggers and and you know the various indian baggers that have happened um you know the chief the, the chieftain the uh what's the other one whatever <laughs> <laughs> you know baggers suffer from a couple things they're low so limited uh limited ground clearance um but that's fine you're on a bagger you're not supposed to be you know trying to drag knee pucks anyway the main criticism that you'll see with in particular with the harley davidson's is that a low motorcycle often has low amounts of uh, suspension travel which transfers a lot of energy into the rider indian with its monoshock design I would not say that's the case. That's actually why I say that the Indian Challenger chassis is a cut above uh, a lot of its direct competitors. Um, but yeah, I could see a lot of what's being learned here being applied to there, um, it, particularly with the throttle maps as well. Uh, I really do think that that's some of that stuff will go into the production bikes. Um, sure. You know, it's so, again, that's sort of a, a, a long long question that i i can't answer directly because uh no 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 of course not but, but now we're into the 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 circle of speculation which is is my favorite part of this <laughs> because i cannot be wrong or right it is just a <laughs> schrodinger's yeah bike chat we'll say right that makes sense at any rate yeah that's where we are and where we are and the 2023 king of bagger series is going on right now they just wrapped up the atlanta round Harley Davidson did secure two victories there. O'Hara was on the box as well. Um, so, you know, Tyler O'Hara got some points. Um, McWilliams was in the mix. And also uh, the, the RSD team with uh, Bobby Fong was up there, up there in the front of the pack too. So, you know, there's a lot of really good stuff going on. And the racing is pretty incredible. 
Um, I mean, some of these races beat out the superbike races. That said, the race two for Atlanta Superbike uh, was absolutely bonkers. That was probably the best Moto America Superbike race I've seen in. Yeah. Uh, when it that might be the best Moto America Superbike race I've seen. Yes. Actually. However, King of Baggers is consistently good. Not I'm not trying to take away. I'm just saying. Yeah. Just saying. okay. <laughs> it was just a pleasure to ride these SNS Indian Challengers. Um, I'm absolutely stoked that we got to ride these and experience them and and just experience what these guys are doing to a certain degree. Obviously, O'Hare and McWilliams are sending these things to the absolute limit, and we're just getting a, a small taste, but it's just shocking the performance that they're able to extract from these bikes, and it proves that you can take anything racing if you have the willpower and the engineering behind it. And right. That's where we're asked because the, the, the proof is in the performance. These guys aren't just running, you know, some middling lap times. They're, they're downright fast. And that's where we're at. Yeah. Fantastic. All right, Nick. Hey, thank you. I appreciate it. It sounds like a really fun time and, uh, and very impressive too. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. In our second segment, associate editor TJ Adams has a fascinating chat with Paul Dorleans, also known as The Vintagent. Started by Paul back in 2006, the website quickly became incredibly popular for those with an interest in older two-wheeled motorcycles. A world-renowned authority on vintage machines, Paul is a judge at many classic events and shows, including the Quail Motorcycle Gathering. I haven't read too much about you. I've seen the Vintagent all over. I love it. And I love that name. <laughs> so <laughs> apparently, from what I've read, and often it's wrong what I've read, you didn't intend to become a motorcyclist. This was a need you had to get around when you were younger. Uh, yeah, actually, it was a... It was a choice and a necessity. Uh, I had two brothers who rode, but uh, the way they rode me around as a young, uh, as the youngest brother was not attractive. <laughs> they terrified me, loved popping wheelies and jumping over railroad tracks and things like that. But clearly it was uh, an option. So yeah, I hated high school with a passion and uh, wanted to uh, graduate a year early. So I found out it was fairly easy. I just needed to take three night classes at the local community college but Stockton, where I grew up in California, uh, was a very dangerous place in the late 70s. It's still a fairly dangerous place today. It was actually the uh, number one murder capital of the USA uh, per capita. And uh, I didn't fancy taking a bus or my bicycle at night for the two miles to the um, community college. So my parents were divorced and I lived with my father and my mother loaned me $200 to buy my first motorcycle. And that was the start of a lifetime uh, journey. <laughs> <laughs> and what were you going to college to study? What was your intention back then? Not that we ever know at that age. Oh, these were just night classes to graduate from high school. I took an anthropology class and another history class and an English uh, literature class. Oh, I see. So no real direction. You just wanted to get out of school. I just, I just wanted to get out. Yeah, I did. When I entered uh, university, I went to UC Santa Cruz. I, uh, applied as a biophysicist. <laughs> and I had a, a special interest in agroecology. UC Santa Cruz had the first university organic farm that had been established in the early 70s. 
And I worked on the farm for a bit and studied a lot of agroecosystems and organic agriculture academically and, you know, with my hands on the farm. And of course, a lot of science classes and architecture and all sorts of stuff. But I took an art class at the end of my first year and uh, realized that I this was like my actual life journey. So I uh, continued to take everything but the science classes. <laughs> so I continued to take architecture and I studied politics and literature and uh, all sorts of things, uh, uh, design, building design and environmental design. But the bulk of my classes was in art. So I could have had five majors, but I narrowed it down to environmental design and art. Nice. Subjects I like anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And were you riding during that period? You carried on motorcycling? No, I wasn't in college. It's funny. Uh, it was, uh, you know, it was strictly utilitarian for me, but I was a big meditator at the time. Actually, I still meditate every day, but uh, even from a young teen. And uh, I met a fellow meditator who collected vintage Italian bikes. And I knew nothing about them, but this guy had like a crazy collection. Ducati round case super sports and Laverda SFCs and Jaleras. And he had the creme de la creme, but he had this beautiful little Jalera 150 or 175 that had flared fenders and a little cast aluminum Jalera logo on the front fender. And it was red and white and it was just so pretty. And that turned my head to a new possibility. It's like, oh, I think I'm, I think I'd like to ride an old bike like that because it's aesthetic. Uh, the aesthetic of it was amazing. But it wasn't until after university that I really got into motorcycles. I was publishing punk rock and poetry and posters and books and like all sorts of stuff for, for shows and anarchist poetry of this fellow named Peter Plate and uh, all sorts of cool stuff. I, I had a printing press in my mother's basement and the fellow who knew how to work this old multi-lith press uh, was a crazy into motorcycles. And he rode around on a, uh, like a 1957 BMW R50 that he'd found under a staircase that was like completely original condition and funky. And I just thought it was charming. So I took a ride around on that. And, and shortly after I, I bought my first uh, vintage bike, which was a BMW R26, a single. And then this fellow, Jim Gilman, who was the uh, a printer, gave me these two milk crates full of magazines, like from issue one of Classic Bike and Classic Motorcycle. And so this was 1984. Like Classic Bike had only been publishing for what, five years? And it was quarterly. And Classic Motorcycle had only started like four years before. So they would the whole run would fit in a couple of milk crates. And I read them all like, I, I literally wore them out just reading them so hard <laughs> over and over. And that really, really got me going. And I started collecting motorcycles. And what got me going on uh, kind of history was I became fascinated with some of the older designs. And, you know, without an internet, the only way you could really learn about these things was, you know, books and magazines. So after university, I used my art skills to become a decorative painter. So in the mid 80s, uh, faux finishing and faux marble and faux bois, faux wood and murals and things were really becoming popular. So that's was my business for 25 years. Wow, that sounds nice as well. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, it was a good business. 
So, but when I had time off, I would go around on my motorcycle to all the used bookstores in San Francisco and just buy every motorcycle title I found and read them. So that's how I learned about motorcycle history was just by buying up anything I could find. And you could see this is about half of my my library, maybe maybe even a third of my library. My goodness. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I wondered if you'd kept the books and I could see all those books behind you. And I thought, yes, this yeah. is a guy... <laughs> This is a collector. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is the uh, stuff I refer to when I'm writing in here. But I have other, I have like thousands and thousands of magazines and a lot, lot, lot more books too. I've got another room like this in my basement and a, a warehouse that's full of all the magazines. And, <laughs> and I just inherited an archive and uh, I'm sorting through it right now from another author. And uh, so... It's pretty all-encompassing. This is becoming a museum. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I do wonder, like, well, okay, wh where is this going to go when I'm no longer using it? <laughs> well, and it's, it's you know, it's a great history. It's, um, yeah. you know, mine of information. Yeah, I think probably I have the biggest archive in the United States. I know a couple people in Europe that have also massive, massive uh, archives. One I visit in southern Germany every year because he has a a huge photo. He has the wherewithal to buy like entire uh, collections of, let's say, all of Moto Review or Motociclismo. He's bought the entire archives from these magazines going back to like the knots or the teens. So he has like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of, of photographs all archived. And he's bought photographers' archives and authors' archives. So he has an incredible collection. A lot of which I've used for my books, actually, uh, especially for the rarer, you know, European stuff. Like he has the original photographs. And... Fantastic. It's so good there are people like you and, and that chap, you know, holding on to these things and preserving them. That's awesome. Yeah. So what, what's the book? Tell me a bit about that. Which one? <laughs> <laughs> Go. <laughs> we want everybody listening as well to know as much as possible. Because for me, my main experience of you is the vintage end. So let's start with the books. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, well, uh, the first book I wrote was called Cafe Racers. It was based on an exhibition I did with Michael Lichter in Sturgis, actually. And Oh, we had about 30 bikes and I supplied a, uh, well, I co-curated co the physical exhibit and then I wrote about Cafe Racer history for the book. And then in 2020, I did a, a second book about Cafe Racers called Ton Up, which is much more in depth. Like it has all the historical research documenting like who and what, who was writing and what they were writing in the teens and the knots like collecting like at the Red Lion pub in uh, North London in the teens, like it was world famous for even with American motorcycle racers, like as a place where people who like to ride fast gathered the original kind of pre Ace Cafe. We're talking like 19, you know, 12, 1911. Amazing. There's a story of a uh, very famous uh, American uh, board track racer, Jake DeRosier who uh, went to England, he raced at the Alamand, he did not do well, but he challenged everyone to a drag on the Douglas Seafront with an eight-valve Indian racer, and he, of course he beat everyone. And then he went to Brooklyn's with this bike, and he beat uh, 
Charlie Collier of Matchless, you know, in a scratch race. And, and he was by default at that point, the fastest motorcyclist in the world. There's a note that he borrowed an Indian with a sidecar, took his wife to the Red Lion pub in Hawley. And uh, it's still there, but unfortunately it was sold in that great wave of pub homogenization in the 80s and 90s. And I even talked to the former manager. He says, oh yeah, we used to have photographs of everyone who came by and they're all gone now. I was like, ah, you want to pull, pull your hair out. Anyway, and I also wrote a book called The Current, which is the first ever book about electric motorcycles. Uh, I did a book called The Chopper, The Real Story, which is like the, still the first and only book like really examining the history of where choppers came from, who made them when, you know, what the styles were, what the evolution was, where it came from in the United States in the teens and 20s when people were customizing bikes. And and I did another book called Custom Revolution, which was a catalog of an exhibit I did at the uh, Peterson Museum. And I've contributed to a whole lot of books, The Ride, uh, which is a Gestalt book and the, the second edition of The Ride. Um, I've written for a book called The Riders. And I just uh, actually, there's a book coming out on the 14th from Tashin. It's called uh, The Ultimate Collector Motorcycles Book. And it's two volumes. It weighs about 30 pounds. And it's 100 of the most collectible motorcycles in the world. It's going to be like $240 book. It's amazing. And I consulted on it and there's an interview with me in the book and, and there's a lot of other books that I'm in, but the, th those are like the principal and primary ones that I've, you know, that are on my shelf right now. Well, everybody I've spoken to knows of you. So I know you, you're prolific, although they're all motorcycles. It's so diverse to be able to look into each one of those different types and really go into them in depth. That's amazing. My specialty is I'm a true generalist. You know, there are a lot of people who know far more than me about particular subjects. Let's say someone who's really into Harleys or Indians or even board track racing or flat track racing, you know, there are a lot of people that know more about those particular subjects or, you know, I've never restored, and uh, you know, certain motorcycles. So people know a lot more about the particulars, but I'm a generalist, you know, and I'm fascinated principally with motorcycle cultures and subcultures and what the relationship between people and motorcycles has been like from the very, very beginning, you know, what's the impulse, you know, it's like giving voice to the thing that we all love about motorcycles that people have a hard time expressing. I seem to be able to like dig in and find incidents through history where people have expressed that beautifully even from the 1860s, <laughs> goes way back. So getting to the essence of the whole culture and, and the feeling, really, it's more than just the machines. Exactly. Yeah, it really is about that magical sensation, you know, that's really, you can't get anywhere else. There, there are things similar to it, like, you know, let's say skiing or snowboarding is similar because you're playing with gravity and going around curves and bicycling is similar to it. It's a lot more work and generally you it's only if you're going downhill on a twisty road where you get that real feeling of flying you know cars are not similar <laughs> unless you're driving like a freaking maniac or racing and there's some similarity there because you're like really addressing gravity at that point but motorcycles are just they're unique you know there's just nothing like the visceral sensation of riding and that's that fascinates me and i think that sensation has produced a lot of culture like people embracing it 
wanting to make it particular, wanting to attach it as a badge of identification. People who are into particular aspects, let's say cafe racers or dirt bike riders or people who want to make customs, you know, I mean, the fundamental, the core of it is like people love motorcycling, you know, and then that gets expressed in myriad ways, like, and it's so versatile or, or just the sheer variety of ways people like express their love for motorcycles is amazing to me. It is to me. I mean, I love to go where people, are, motorcyclists are gathering and you see all the different styles and everybody's, as you say, expressing themselves, they've got the different t-shirts and badges and, but they're all on, you know, they're all on motorcycles. And they're all nice. I must admit, everybody that I've met in the motorcycling industry and just, you know, motorcycling life are nice people. Yeah. I mean, the jerks stand out because they're rare, right? (laughs) (laughs) You know, one thing I love, you know, in general, nobody cares who you are or what you do on a motorcycle. You know, it's like they don't need to know your backstory. It's sufficient that you are a fellow motorcyclist because we are a a semi-oppressed minority. (laughs) (laughs) I think it binds people, you know, of a common interest. It's true. I have to sort of remind myself because I'm immersed in the motorcycle world and it's everything. But then there are so many people, all of my family, so many people who just have no idea about this glorious life. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's very true. Gordon McCall, who founded the Quail Motorcycle Gathering, also founded the Quail Motorsports Gathering, which is car-oriented, and the Jet Center Party and things like that. And he's been part of the whole Pebble Beach scene for many, many decades, you know, since he was a teenager, washing cars before the Pebble Beach concourse. You know, that's how he got his start. Ten years ago, he said at the Quail, he says, you know, I really prefer the motorcycle events to the car events because the car events have become about money. And they become all about uh, status and access and, you know, how much did you pay for your car and what's it worth? And he says, motorcycle people don't really think that way. There's a bit of it. You know, people are like, oh, what's that rough superior cost? And of course, we're all conscious of what we have to pay to buy a certain thing, but it's not it's not our identity. It's more like a sacrifice we have to make to own a thing, <laughs> you know, but we're not most riders are not attached to the fact that they paid X for a bike. It's more of just like, are you riding it? Are you enjoying it? Is it cool? I thought that was a beautiful uh, commentary, you know, that despite the fact that some motorcycles sell for a million dollars, you know, very few, but it has not infected the motorcycle scene, you know? Yes. And I think most people who do collect the motorcycles, in my experience, actually use them and ride them and keep them alive. It's not a case of having something just for show. Yeah, I mean, I feel guilty if I have bikes that I don't ride. It's like, oh, they're just, if you're not using them, they're rotting, basically. <laughs> you have to use them. The Quail uh, Motorcycle Gathering, that's in Carmel in California. That covers all eras of motorcyclists, doesn't it? Yeah, for sure. You know, there are very few motorcycle-only concours in the world at this point. I was a judge at the uh, Concorso Villa d'Este for 10 years, and they car and the motorcycle concourse were totally separated. They were even at different venues. So it was a motorcycle only concourse, but it was only, let's say, 40 motorcycles per year. Whereas something like the Quail has, you know, hundreds of motorcycles on the field and many thousands of people uh, in attendance. And 
it's a very different thing. You know, the food, and music, and the people who come, and you're rubbing elbows with world champions and, you know, legends from film. And, you know, that's just the thing about motorcycles is it's not so much true in the car world because I also go to Villa d'Este, the car side, or check it out. And just a very different vibe. And Pebble Beach is like, in my opinion, the worst of all. Actually, I wrote an article uh, for the Automobile Magazine in England, who I contribute to pretty regularly. They wanted a review of Pebble Beach like, probably eight years ago. And uh, I was so just disgusted with how crowded it was and how you couldn't see anything and how you couldn't access a lot of areas or events because they were for, you know, VIPs. And I, I just, you know, and I knew that they were exceeding their fire department mandated capacity by a factor of 10 and making millions, you know, on selling tickets for $300, $500 each, you know, and, and it's like, this is, this sucks. And I wrote an article, Occupy Pebble Beach, which to their credit, they printed verbatim. <laughs> I was going to say that would have been a really difficult review to, to write. <laughs> it was an easy review to write, but I didn't expect, I just sent it off and I said, I, I didn't expect you to print it, but they did. And uh, they even used my the, the term uh, uh, overcrowded clusterfuck, which I described <laughs> succinctly. Anyway, so but motorcycle concours are super rare. And, you know, motorcycle shows really have taken the place of concours, you know. So let's say a one show or mama tried or hand built show, you know they're kind of much more democratic and much more not so much focused on on restoration per se you know and more on creativity and it's kind of cultural interest there are certainly car shows that do that but um the ones that we think about the concourse they're not really about that at this point it's just about nitpicking and and money <laughs> and skullduggery too i could tell you <laughs> Oh, I'd like to hear that. Everybody warns me about their salacious skullduggery, and I don't hear any of it. <laughs> well, let's just say I've seen uh, people who have made, let's say, a brake reservoir cap from plaster the night before the Pebble Beach concourse and painted it up and put it on because they couldn't find the right one. And then they won their class. You know, it's like there's a lot of bullshit. And I've seen very, very expensive uh, French cars that are supposedly completely original and yet a little conversation with the right person you're like oh yeah he took the fabric for the for the seats from another car and he took this from that and this and that it's like well it's not original at all actually it was like and then the paint is like touched up and then rubbed back for just the right patina it's like it's just a load of crap because these people know if they win their class their car is worth you know xyz you know millions and millions so it becomes uh, full of intrigue, <laughs> but that's not the point of the conversation. <laughs> More about the money. Yes. Well, the, the Quail um, Motorcycle Gathering, as you say, it's a glorious event. I mean, it's fantastic. I really would urge anybody to go along if they haven't been. And just the atmosphere there is incredible. And you're judging there this year. Yeah, my, I, my judging these days, I, I actually emcee the event. So I help with uh, prize givings and things like that, uh, and sometimes conduct interviews. But I also do a little judging. It's very hard for me to do like the full on judging. I used to do it. 
but it was too much. So now I help with the big, uh, let's say I'm a judge consultant. <laughs> I help with the big prizes, especially best in show, uh, because the judges are amazing and they really know their stuff. Sometimes as their average age is in their 70s, uh, they uh, uh, have, let's say, an old fashioned view of what a winner should be or a best in show should be. And sometimes it takes a little uh, encouragement, conversation, cajoling and arm twisting to say, no, we're in the 21st century. And if you want some attention for your winner, I would suggest this because X, Y, and Z, you know? So, and actually most of them are really open to that. And that's not how they're thinking. They're just experts in their particular field of restoration or something. And, you know, I'm there because I have my finger on the pulse of what's happening in the motorcycle world, around the world. So as you say, judge consultant, you're sort of gluing the thing together. <laughs> not, so, I won't give myself that much credit. Let's say I'm the judge cajoler. <laughs> <laughs> Guiding them gently. The Vintagent, how did we get going with that? Yeah, it was a pretty funny story. I mean, I so I had all this knowledge about motorcycles and all these books and everything. And I had been invited to judge shows. And there was a fantastic show uh, in Half Moon Bay called The Legend of the Motorcycle, which was really changed a lot. I think it was as influential in the motorcycle scene as the art of the motorcycle exhibit at the Guggenheim. And in fact, may have been more influential because it truly brought people from around the world. Uh, so let's say one year they had breath superiors, a featured mark, and people came from England and Europe and brought their breath superiors to the show. And it was very, very special. And just the quality and the level of motorcycles and the fact that people came from Japan and from Germany and from Italy and from Britain and all over the United States. I, I'm not even sure how Jared Zog pulled that off, Jared and Brooke Zog, you know, because they weren't really motorcycle people. They were PR people and just dream this thing up. And, you know, if you build it, they will come and they came. And that lasted three years. And after the first event in 2006, it was when blogs were really just kind of getting started as uh, Google had created the blogger format, which was to combine photos and text, right? Before that, blogs had been mostly just blog roles, right? They're, they're just musings of a, of a writer just in a text format. And uh, they date back to the origins of the internet, you know, they go way back. But Google and their wisdom created the blog format as we know it today, which was combining images and text. So in 2006, in October, I was featured on the Sartorialist blog, which was like a street fashion blog that's really very, very famous. Like anyone in the fashion industry has known about this blog since the mid 2000s. And he photographed me on the blog. And it was funny, in order to comment on blogs at that moment, Google was kind of doing a, an Amway thing or, you know, it was like a pyramid scheme. You had to have a blog or they made it easier to start a blog and then comment than just comment as a person. So I thought of the name The Vintagent, which goes back to the 30s, people who are into old cars and motorcycles. And because I had this like space and I had a lot of great photographs from the Legend of the Motorcycle show from earlier that year. I just started posting a photo with a few words and 
And then I, you know, pretty quickly I had, it was the first old motorcycle blog and pretty quickly people were, it was like 500 people a day were looking at this thing. And so I set myself a challenge of posting three times a week for a year to see what happened. And uh, the readership really exploded. That was 2007. And I started getting asked to write for magazines like Cycle World and, you know, suddenly I was making some money and not a whole lot, but my best friend who is much smarter than me about these things says, so this is your next career. You know, you're going to quit doing your contracting thing. And, and he was right. Uh, that happened in 2010. So four years after I started my blog, I quit my contracting career and just became a writer and blogger and was an editor at Cycle World, an editor at At Large Magazine, and cobbled together an income just writing. I love to hear that. I love to hear the way people's careers have developed, especially in the motorcycling world, because it's not something when you're at school you, you would say to a teacher or when you go off to your, you know, careers <laughs> lesson, I want to be into motorcycles. And I love to hear the way that's come about and also to encourage people to try different things if they think there's, they've got a nugget of an idea. I like the way you set yourself a challenge. Yeah. Yeah, I was really curious to see what would happen if I really just kind of dug in. It's not always easy, but I'm glad I did it. <laughs> and, you know, in the 80s and 90s, I was just as passionate, crazy about motorcycling while I conducted my other career. But it seemed like the only options open were to become a mechanic or a dealer or a restorer, none of which appealed to me. And so suddenly there was this opportunity to be uh, a historian and a commentator. And uh, that did appeal to me. So, you know, it was like a whole new possibility opened up. And I think, you know, at this point, you know, the possibilities are even greater. In the 80s and 90s, like I said, you could be a mechanic or a restorer or a dealer. Now, like you kind of can write your own script. You know, people are hosting events and, you know, uh, uh, or becoming customizers or putting together their own kind of reader-supported pages. Yeah, traveling and letting people know about it. It's The world is so much more accessible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of travelers are keeping their own Instagram blogs or other blogs, yeah, and having a following and asking for support. And Yeah, it's fascinating. It's very cool. Yeah, it's difficult to imagine a world without the internet and the way things are these days. Well, it, I think it's probably difficult for... The younger generation, I don't know. I'm not the younger generation. <laughs> I, I mean, have three young boys, but they're all finding their way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it's inconceivable at this point. So barring disaster, this is our future. As much as we may complain about it, it is kind of the good parts about the internet are, you know, what it was intended for or imagined as a connector between people of mutual interest an incredible thing so i'm really pleased to hear that you're you're producing a book which is actually weighing as much as a motorcycle <laughs> <laughs> but you're producing this big did you say 250 pound book and what was the name again no 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 it's a 250 i, I have a copy they excuse me a moment i'll, I'll bring it up for you okay so whoa that is huge this is it got a picture of a monk mammoth on it and it's, it's not going to be available on the Tashin site until the 14th of April, but fucking hell, look at this thing. Okay. For those listening, this is humongous. <laughs> I mean, it's the size of half a coffee table. It's fully four inches wide. It's uh, looks like it's about, uh, the format is about 12 by 16 and it's two volumes. It's crazy. 
and the photography is beautiful. The writing is good. It's Peter Thiel uh, and and Peter and Charlotte Thiel, uh, who are normally car writers, but they know their how to do their research, and they ask the right people for assistance, like me. <laughs> is that limited edition, or is that going to be available to everybody? Everybody, yeah. Ta if you go to the Tashin website, it's uh, Ultimate Motorcycle. You'll find it. Sound familiar? We'll put a link. Yeah, it does. It's very close to <laughs> ultimate motorcycling. <laughs> the doing of, <laughs> as opposed to the item, <laughs> the lifestyle. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I'm hoping to have a discount code on the Vintagent when it becomes available on the 14th. So stay tuned on my Instagram or Facebook or all that. And we'll put those links also in the show notes. Thank you so much. That's fabulous. Well, it sounds as though you've had um, perfect life. I know this is only a summary. <laughs> well, I, I don't know about that. but <laughs> I don't want to hear disasters. I mean, any interesting little anecdotes are always good. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's been an interesting life, that's for sure. I'm sure you've heard of the Wheels and Waves event in France. I had met some of the founders of, of Wheels and Waves at the Legend of the Motorcycle Concourse. They had escorted a, a very, very special Norton called the Norton a la Verde, it was a commando in a Laverda frame with beautiful bodywork, and it was green. It was just incredible. And they brought it for the show. Frank Chariot invited me to, to come ride with them in Biarritz in the south of France. They're, they're both from Toulouse, but they had summer houses in Biarritz. So the, in 2009, uh, I unexpectedly got divorced. So uh, this, this ride was kind of my divorce party in June of 2009 and uh, <laughs> I was licking my wounds and we had a fantastic time. There were a dozen of us and we rode around in the Basque countryside for, for four days. And then uh, uh, we repeated the exercise the following year, I actually moved to Paris in 2010 and uh, was there for a year and a half. And this ride became official uh, as wheels and waves in I think 2012. Actually, I contributed to a book documenting the first 10 years of Wheels and Waves uh, that came out last year. Uh, I still haven't got my copy, boys. Where is it? <laughs> and uh, it's funny how writing, and that's just an anecdote, you know, life isn't always easy and real life is, you know, has its ups and downs. But uh, because of motorcycling, I, you know, helped start this incredible thing you know there's 20,000 people a year that go to wheels and waves and it was terrific fun every year to do that and you know I made a lot of friends in Europe and you know ended up living in Paris which was amazing and uh, you know it's like what I gained from from those relationships that were begun at a concourse you know were was like life-altering and and truly enriched my life yeah that's an amazing story all those different twists and turns. It's also very interesting that having been to those fabulous places, I mean, I, I love America, don't get me wrong, um, that you've ended up choosing prison to live. I suppose there's too much choice, really. Uh, yeah, there is a lot of choice. I mean, I've lived in London and I've lived in um, Paris and Warsaw and New York over the decades. So yeah, I like traveling. And now I'm, you know, living part-time and half time in Mexico. So a diverse range of places. Yeah. I've always had motorcycles wherever I go, you know, what, what are your motorcycles now? Your current ride? Yeah. You know what? I've never owned a motorcycle newer than like 1994. So <laughs> yeah, I, and that was an aberration. I got a hankering 
to buy a Ducati Paso, a 907, because they're really neat bikes. Because previous to that, the newest bike I'd ever owned was probably 78. Uh, another Ducati. I like Ducatis and British bikes. Yeah, the Paso got stolen like within a week of me buying it. And it got ruined and uh, spray painted all black. I did get it back. And it was like, okay, forget it. I'm not getting any new, more new bikes. <laughs> that was 20 years ago. So I mostly ride at the moment, Bellasets and uh, Bruff Superior and Norton and Triumph. But I also have couple of MZs. I have an ISDT MZ that belonged to Werner Selevsky, who was like a seven-time ISDT champ in the 60s. And I have an MZ TS250, which is a bike I rode from London to the Soviet border in 1987 and explored around the Eastern Bloc before uh, communism came down. That was an amazing trip, four-month trip. Yeah, sounds like it. Wow, you've seen some things. Yeah, it was a different universe. The one bike I have that that isn't really rideable at the moment is an old original like 1946 Bob job that uh, was owned by Bud Eakins and modified by him when he was in high school. <laughs> Goodness me, and, <laughs> and that survived. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a standard, which is a German overhead cam 500 single, very unusual bike in the United States, and a very unusual bike to turn into a Bob job. It's like crazy. Yes. Well, the bikes you've just uh, listed as, you know, your your rides are very, what I would say, unusual, select, an unusual selection of bikes. Difficult to ride. You know, they have all the controls in different places, etc. <laughs> That's never been a problem for me. Uh, I, I find that very entertaining, you know, hand shift, lever throttle, whatever, fine. I've ridden plenty of, uh, you know, foot clutch, American bikes, hand shift, all that stuff. You know, it all makes sense. Everything is learnable. Usually it doesn't even take very long, you know, and you just kind of get used to it. The hardest thing is actually between is uh, right foot shifter bikes that like a Triumph is like down for first and a, and a Veloset and a Norton is up for first. <laughs> so that can be a little confusing, you know, when you're just riding intuitively. But uh, yeah, you have to remain focused <laughs> for sure. Generally, it's fine. It doesn't really matter. So how many bikes have you got in all, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, right now, I have 14, which is a little bit too much. Difficult to decide, I bet, when you, you, you're about to pop out for a ride. Eh, deciding is not so much as maintenance. You know, bikes, old bikes take maintenance, and sometimes I don't have a lot of time. So I keep two bikes in Mexico. I've got a 1970 Triumph uh, Trophy and a 1959 Norton Nomad down in Mexico. Fun to ride there's a lot of dirt roads down there so they're perfect they're not motocrossers but they're great on dirt roads and i'd say my more consistent rides in san francisco are a 65 bonneville and a 1960 veloset clubman and a breath superior 1150 those are the three bikes that i ride a lot wow and you look after these yourself do you know a bit about generally uh although in in the last let's say 10 years i've um used a couple of mechanics to kind of help keep things rolling when I don't have a lot of time. I can imagine, yes, the time, as you say, keeping them all. Well, and finding people who can do it. I mean, these days, it's like the San Francisco Bay Area used to have dozens and dozens of shops. And now hmm, I think there is are maybe two like legitimate shops that will work on old bikes, as in have a license and a 
storefront. And have the knowledge. And, and have the knowledge. You know, that's in a region that has a lot of vintage motorcycles. Wow. I bet you don't want to name those shops because they won't have time to fix your bikes. I mean, go ahead. We're happy to put anybody out there. One is uh, Mean Marshalls uh, in Oakland. And uh, Mean Marshall was a good friend of mine. And he died a few years ago and his son has taken over the shop. So he's like trying to make a go of it. There used to be another shop here called Ravers for decades. But the problem is it's just become so expensive to live here that, you know, on a mechanic's salary, it's very difficult to even rent a house in the Bay Area. So, you know, these shops have closed for lack of like suitable talent, employment talent. Yes. Yeah. What a shame. I mean, I'm hoping that the era of having an apprentice and going through that whole love of a subject and um, learning from scratch will come back into the fashion in the way so many things have done recently. Yeah, I agree. Um, actually, in Southern California, it's much less of an issue. There's a lot of shops in Southern California. So and a lot of people working uh, professionally on on older bikes. So it's just the same for whatever reason, San Francisco Bay Area. Well, I know why it's, it's gentrification. You know, it's just become far too expensive to live here on a like a, a tradesman's salary, you know, unless you're a plumber or something, you know, <laughs> electrician. <laughs> yes. But a mechanic, not so easy. <laughs> Well, it's been fascinating speaking with you. Is there anything that you want me to mention that, that we haven't mentioned? I'd encourage people, you know, motorcyclists tend to be really cheap. <laughs> and like for something like the quail, you know, I think the entry is like, I don't know, for the all the food and everything, it's whatever, it's $95 or something. It's like, don't be cheap, live a little, just go out. There are not that many events anymore for motorcycles, especially old motorcycles. Support them, you know, support them, buy a book, you know, buy a magazine, you know, I've, it was my, it was my goal as a writer to have a column at Cycle World and I finally got it, you know, I started writing a monthly column there and whatever it was 2016 or something and I was an editor and, you know, and then they stopped doing print. <laughs> yes, that's what happened with us at Ultimate Motorcycling, yes, 2016. It's like there are hardly any motorcycle print mags out there you know and and spend some money on the thing that you love go to a show you know travel for a show travel to the hand-built show to austin travel to the one show in portland go to the midwest for mama tried or you know are those things it's like support your scene it's like otherwise it's just going to die and it becomes totally atomized you know we need to give people support i mean i have a i have a nonprofit foundation you know, we've gotten hundreds of thousands of dollars from from corporations like Harley Davidson and Damon Motorcycles, et cetera, et cetera, to because we've hosted five exhibits at the Peterson. We're trying something different now, which is like finding young people with a tremendous talent who need support for education. So we just found a young man in Ghana who was making solar powered scooters, like making them out of junk. And I put a couple of his vehicles in the Peterson Museum in my last exhibit called Electric Revolutionaries. And we actually managed to get him a year's design course at Art Center in Pasadena for free. And they gave him a computer and they gave him weekly mentoring. And it's like, it's possible to do great stuff. You know, it just, you got to support. And people are actually, people are actually pretty good about Kickstarter and stuff, you know, when they're prompted. 
and I would encourage people to, you know, throw down 20 bucks whenever you're asked. <laughs> you can afford. <laughs> yeah, to nurture. Otherwise, things will die out. You have to. Uh... I was just at the bike shed in L.A. because we pulled all of the bikes out of our, our last show. And I put in the three of Ian Barry's Falcon motorcycles in the bike shed, the black, the Kestrel and the, the Bullet. They're very famous custom motorcycles. They're on view. Uh, we brought a couple of radical bikes. The Mission One, which was the first ever electric sport bike, is there. And one of Joey Reuter's uh, crazy cuboid polished aluminum conceptual motorcycles. And we're talking about doing a show there over a weekend in June that I would curate and bring like really exceptional uh, vehicles together. And and we're talking with them about, I, I did a, a motorcycle film festival with my film editor on the vintage and Karina Manflow for three years in New York. And uh, we're thinking about rebooting that and the bike shed might be a good place to do it. Comes So that's like another example. It's like, this is kind of one of the only places in the country where motorcyclists go specifically. It's a completely neutral space. You know, it's like, they don't care what you come in on or what you're thing is about motorcycles is just about motorcycles you know so and that's a pretty central place to get to los angeles it's in it's in the arts district isn't it and the buildings are enormous it's a, it's a nice groovy place to be yeah food's great great bar huge, yeah huge space they've got a barber shop they've got a tattoos motorcycle gear like and an exhibit space it's crazy that's it and you can go there for free you can just turn up and buy yourself a coffee or a beer you can go on your own because there are always lots of people there everybody talks to each other yeah yeah it's super cool and you can you can just see all these great bikes that you and other people are putting there they they turn over the bikes don't they quite frequently not turn them upside down i mean they change them around <laughs> yeah, yeah there's a couple of uh brad pitt's uh bikes that he bought from shinny kimura there and uh, jay shia has one of her customs in there and roland sands has a couple of customs in there it's like it's cool it is cool and you can go there and meet just you know before you go off on a ride or on your way back i mean they're open early for breakfast i think they've uh, got a fantastic venue together there yeah it's like the parking lot conversations it's just like going to a, a motorcycle event or going to a motorcycle hangout you know the rock store or whatever it's like those parking lot conversations are great <laughs> yes i'll put a link also for the bike shed so if people are wondering what we're talking about they can have a look at that as is yeah we i just did a story on uh on dutch so who's the co-founder and maybe we can put a link on that too yes absolutely yes dutch and vicky they started um the first bike shed in london didn't they yeah which is also a very cool place they have a knack for uh, finding locations before they become incredibly hip so that i think they took they bought the location in la maybe four or five years ago. And in the intervening period, it's just exploded in terms of real estate value and development. The same was true of their London venue. You know, the East End was not that it was, the brick lane was kind of coming up when they started the bike shed, but now it's like inconceivable. Yeah, inconceivable to open a, a motorcycle thing there now, but it's there. <laughs> yes, yeah. That's great. I think we've got the best deal in LA because they did the test run first of all in London. <laughs> yeah, right. Anyway, so yeah, stay tuned. Um, I may uh, probably be doing a bike show there this summer and uh, maybe even the film festival concept uh, later on. Awesome. 
And if everybody wants to come along and meet you, as you say, you literally rub shoulders with people when you go to the quell. I think it's um, May the 6th again. I'll put a link. May the 6th. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Come. Gosh, please come. It's a beautiful ride up to Carmel from wherever you're you're heading from. You can, you know, fly somewhere and do a higher ride. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's worth the It's worth the trip for sure. It's really the food is amazing. I, it's funny. They have a two tier admission. One is without food and one is with food. Last year, they said up to a week before the event, no one had bought any of the just kind of general admission, no food. Everybody was opting for the higher price ticket because they knew the food was terrific. You know, they get free champagne and free drinks and, you know, amazing food because it's uh, the Peninsula Hotel Group is like a nine star hotel group. You know, <laughs> the quail is like the hobby of Mr. Kaduri, you know, it's his focus is really on these six exceptional hotels around the world, you know, and it's his hobby because he's a car and motorcycle collector. So he's there for Pebble Beach and for the quail motorsports gathering and the quail motorcycle gathering. So, so it's like his baby. And of course, he's he's used to treating people like royalty with that sort of hospitality. The Peninsula Group is fantastic. Yeah, so you get that kind of hospitality at, and it's super well organized and the staff is fantastic and the food is amazing. It's like nothing else in the motorcycle calendar. <laughs> if you do it once, go and do it. Yeah, exactly. As you say, you were saying before, make a plan, start small, you know, start with making sure you do something, get a little goal and make sure you, you get to it. Exactly. Come along. Little, little, <laughs> it's been great speaking with you, Paul, and I look forward to seeing you at the Quail, I hope. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Yeah, I'll be there. I'll have a my Motorcycle Arts Foundation booth will be there and a Vintage. It's a combined with the Vintage booth. So, yeah, come stop by. Brilliant. All right. Talk again soon. Ta-da. Thank you. Cheers.